three, two, one. This is Into the Absurd episode number 24 with Dr. Casey Johnson. She is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Idaho. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So could you say a little bit about your background? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, uh, I got into philosophy when I was most of the way through my undergraduate career. I sort of happened on it by accident and um, fell in love pretty quickly. And I was lucky enough to work as a research assistant for a professor the summer before my senior year in undergrad. And that really showed me what a life in philosophy could be like. So I decided to pursue graduate school. And uh, I took a couple years off between undergraduate and graduate school, and then uh, started my PhD work at the University of Connecticut. And I completed a PhD there while doing also a fellowship at Northwestern University, and then returned to the University of Connecticut for a postdoc um, uh, as a postdoctoral research fellow at a humanities institute doing interdisciplinary work. And then uh, got my job here at U of I. That's awesome. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> Do you think philosophy kind of finds you? I think uh, if you're lucky, philosophy finds you. Yeah. Um, I think there's so few people who, you know, grow up wanting to be a philosopher when they grow up. <laughs> but, uh, and, and you don't really hear a lot of people who are professional philosophers. So it's not something people often think of or have in mind um, when they're entering school or going through school. So I was lucky that philosophy found me. Uh, and I think there are probably a handful of people out there who have it in mind as a career. But for, for the most part, if you're lucky, it finds you. Yeah, I think when you're a kid, you, you hear about Aristotle and Plato. And then you're thinking, okay, well, I mean... Being a philosopher was something of the past. People can't do that anymore. Okay. And yeah. then you get to college and you realize, oh, wait, you know, there's, there's millions of philosophers. Yeah. They're all over totally. the place. And, and people are doing philosophy, whether they call it that or not. I, I really mm -hmm. think that um, especially children, but everybody really is already grappling with hard questions. We just do it professionally. Yeah. So to get into your, your focuses, I wanted to clarify what mansplaining is. And I also want to know how men can avoid it. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, great questions. So um, yeah, so I've started working, starting really with my dissertation and, and a lot of the work I've done since. I've been working on the way that people's social position, like their identity, how they identify, but also how other people see them or perceive them, how that social identity affects what people can do with their language. And we do so much with our language, right? We um, move around our social world, we navigate with each other, we coordinate different projects, um, we decide where to go to dinner, right? All the sort of like big, large scale coordination and the you know, less high stakes kinds of um, decision-making. We do all this stuff with language. And some of it really seems to matter uh, to who we are and to um, our lives going well. 
And uh, this is something that feminist philosophers have written about for a while, the ways in which it's important for our lives to go well, that we be able to do things with our language, to tell our own stories, but also to communicate our desires and especially to communicate our knowledge. So one thing that's really important in the work that I do is uh, figuring out how people's social identity affects their ability to tell people what they know and to get more information, to participate in inquiry together and to testify. So testimony in philosophy is telling people what you know. And it seems like it's really important for people to live well and for people to uh, navigate their intellectual lives. If I can't tell you what I know, you can't give me more helpful information and I can't be recognized as an expert in the things I'm an expert in. If no one recognizes me um, as a knowledgeable person, that really kind of frustrates my intellectual goals. One, so, so in writing about this, which I've been, I've been writing about for some years now, um, I was writing a paper just sort of generally about this phenomenon where people's social identity or people's perception of my social identity can affect how well I can communicate my knowledge. And it just occurred to me that this phenomenon of mansplaining that people had been sort of talking about and the, you know, the, the words out there in social media and people are writing articles in like uh, The Atlantic and in uh, Bustle Magazine about, uh, about mansplaining that this was something that was really related, that mansplaining seemed like the kind of phenomenon that could uh, frustrate people explaining what they know, people being identified as knowers um, because of their social identity. And I just threw this as a footnote into a, another paper I was working on. And the editor that I was working with at the time said, oh, that's an interesting idea. I don't know if anyone's written about that yet. So I was like, oh, well, if no one's written about it yet, I should get on that and, and write something up. And from that sort of uh, exchange, um, and the editor in question there was uh, Sanford Goldberg, who is a great social epistemologist um, at Northwestern. Uh, he really encouraged me to uh, pursue this idea. So I did, and I wrote up this paper on mansplaining. And I just really explored, in that paper, I just really explore the ways in which um, the kind of philosophy I do, which is called speech act theory, can help illuminate and explain how mansplaining works. And unfortunately, I don't have anything in there about how men can avoid it, um, but I think we can sort of build an account um, as we go, as maybe in talking about it a little bit, we can build an account of <laughs> what men should do to avoid it. We can kind of work through it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm happy to talk about the particulars of that paper, if that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I want to know like what, like maybe what is the definition of mansplaining? I think you listed three different types of mansplaining. Yeah, so in the paper, I, I go through three different types of mansplaining. Um, mansplaining that I've, I've heard about or experienced, um, and I don't claim that this is an exhaustive list, uh, but uh, these are just three types that sort of came up as I was, as I was working on the paper and, and in conversation with people. So in general, um, I understand mansplaining as participating or enacting uh, one of a set of conversational practices. So we have these patterns we participate in in conversation. 
And if you enact one of those patterns, because your conversational partner is a woman and you're not paying attention to how much of an expert she is, sort of like despite how much uh, expertise she has, if you participate in this pattern because she's a woman, not paying attention to how much of an expert she is, you're mansplaining, especially if, if the person you were talking to were not a woman, you would not have done that pattern. So let me put it a little bit uh, um, with a little, a little more, little less abstraction. We all participate in conversational patterns. That's sort of part of being a good converser. And the claim that I make in the paper is, if the pattern that you pick for your conversation is driven by the fact that your conversational partner is or is perceived as a woman, then probably you're mansplaining. So if your conversational partner's gender is what determines or what plays a role in the pattern that you pick and the pattern is of of a particular kind, then then you're probably mansplaining. So uh, in the paper, I developed like a bunch of different, um, as you mentioned, a bunch of different kinds of mansplaining. So if you pick one of those patterns, and I'll, I'll talk about picking a pattern in just a moment, but if you pick one of those patterns, especially I think you're in danger, you're in, in sort of the mansplaining danger zone. So I don't mean that like we, we deliberately pick patterns. I'm not like, oh, here are three different kinds of conversations I could have, let me pick option B. It's not that conscious. It's very much driven by sort of um, subconscious habits uh, and so this is not the kind of thing that we would do deliberately. I, I, I think very few mansplainers mansplain on purpose. It's more like we fall into these habits of conversation. And so if you have habitually treated women or conversed with women in one of these patterns, um, you're probably more likely to do it in, in a new case. And that means that mansplaining becomes a kind of habit that mansplainers have. So what you're saying is that a lot of people might be mansplaining, but they're not, they don't actually know that they're mansplaining. Yeah. I think that's very often the case. Yeah. I mean, I get accused of it a few times by my girlfriend, but um, I did, I just thought I was trying to explain something, but, but I guess I, I was uh, doing it in such a way that she felt, um, she felt offended. So yeah, I think I've been trying happens. to watch myself. I, I, I think that that's admirable. Um, but I think that it happens uh, very often. I, I really think that, you know, there's a chance, of course, that mansplainers are out there, like, let me undermine the expertise of all the women I talk to. But that seems really unlikely. It's does, it, it just doesn't seem like the majority of cases are like that. So maybe it would be helpful if I talk a little bit about the three kinds of mansplaining. And then the one that I focus on sounds like it might be one that you're, uh, you're having some experience with. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. So the three kinds of mansplaining I talk about are, um, they have kind of like cutesy philosophy names, but they're, um, the first is, uh, well, actually mansplaining. So, um, well, actually mansplaining is the sort of maybe typical one that we see, um, uh, made fun of sometimes in, in internet memes. Um, but well, actually mansplaining happens when a woman uh, explains something and then the mansplainer uh, explains it again in a very slightly different way. Uh, so um, 
uh, the, I have a little joke at the beginning of my paper where uh, in an interview with Hillary Clinton, Jimmy Kimmel asks, uh, are you familiar with mansplaining? Do you know what that is? And Hillary Clinton says, oh yeah, that's when a man explains something to a woman in a patronizing way. And Jimmy Kimmel says, well, actually, it's when a man explains something to a woman in a condescending way, but you were close. Right? And so the reason that this joke works, it's, it's obviously a joke in the context, but the reason that the joke works is that it's super familiar and Jimmy Kimmel is doing a exaggerated or really blatant example of it. And so it's funny because we're like, oh yeah, that does happen. Uh, and, and so that's the kind of an exaggerated version of the well actually mansplaining. And so what happens, I, I argue in a case like that, is that the mansplainer is likely not even paying much attention to the explanation that the woman is given. There's a sort of attitude or a presumption that the mansplainer's explanation is going to be better because the woman's level of expertise can't be the same, or he, he's not even, the mansplainer's not even paying attention to the level of expertise. So that's a kind of like self-focused, um, uh, kind of mansplaining that happens just because the mansplainer is so sure that their explanation is going to be the best one. The second kind of mansplaining that I talk about uh, is um, slightly different. Uh, it's called straw mansplaining. Uh, and if you've taken any philosophy classes, uh, especially um, classes that deal with argumentation, a straw man argument is a kind of fallacy. So a straw man argument is when you make your opponent's argument or objection weaker than it in fact is. And then you address it as if you've like addressed any arguments against your view. So we go over this when we're teaching arguments because it's important that you not straw man your opponent, right? You don't wanna argue against a weaker version of your opponent's claim. So in straw mansplaining, what happens is that a woman will make a claim or an objection or an argument, and then the straw mansplainer uh, addresses a weaker version. And this is one that I've experienced um, when I go to conferences or uh, see philosophy talks sometimes. Um, a, a presenter will present and I'll raise an objection to their presentation and they'll address a, a simpler question or a weaker objection than the one I in fact asked. And again, I don't think people are, uh, mansplainers who do this are like trying to undermine me. I, I think probably they're acting in good faith. They just, because of my gender identity, because of how they read me and what they, uh, the assumptions they make about women's expertise think, oh, she must not be asking that hard question. Or they interpret my question as, as a simpler one than uh, I intended to be asking. Now, of course, conversation is complicated. Uh, we kind of do all this sort of thing all the time. If my, uh, if my intro students ask a really hard question, I might be, I might have really good reason to think that they need a simpler one answered first, right? So we participate in interpreting one another and in trying to figure out what the best way to respond is. We do this kind of thing all the time. So that's why I call it a conversational pattern, right? We get into these patterns uh, of conversation, of interpretation of one another, and then they come up in patterned ways. They come up in habitual ways. So the straw mansplainer is doing something that we all do occasionally. But if the person is doing, the straw mansplainer is doing that because their conversational partner is a woman, then I think we're in sort of more icky territory. Hmm. I think parents do that a lot. 
Exactly. And when parents do it, it doesn't seem like it's always so bad. Like with little, little kids, it seems like probably they need a simpler explanation. But then when your parents do it to you when you're a teenager or a grown up, it's, it feels infuriating. It feels infantilizing. And that's precisely how the straw mansplainer, uh, the woman who is straw mansplained too, feels. So then the third kind, the kind that's my focus in the paper is called speech act confusion mansplaining. So in speech act confusion mansplaining, uh, it, this is the one that involves the most speech act theory as you can probably tell from the name. In speech act confusion mansplaining, what happens is a woman will raise a point, she'll make, um, she'll, she'll tell her, her conversational partner something or she will, um, give an explanation for something. And her conversational partner interprets her as making a request for more information or as asking a question. So there's a confusion in the conversation about what kind of speech act, is it an assertion? Is it a telling? Is it, you know, what, what, the, um, what kind of speech act the, the woman is making? She's trying to assert, but she's interpreted as asking, requesting, or um, requesting more information or asking for an explanation. So there's a kind of difference of perception about what kind of action she was doing. And this is a case that I build off of um, some writing from Rebecca Solnit, who's written on, uh, on mansplaining a bit. And Solnit has this case uh, where she had written a book and uh, she was at a party and someone was talking to her and she mentioned that she was doing research for this book uh, and her, her conversational partner said, oh, there's a brand new book about this coming out. Like you should definitely check out this book. And her friend says, yeah, that, that's her book. And the person continues, the, the, uh, the mansplainer, continues to sort of extol the virtues of this book to recommend this book to her. And she's like, yeah, that's my book. <laughs> So uh, in that case, she was trying to tell him she had written this new book and he interpreted her as asking for recommendations or asking for more information about that subject area. So that's the kind of thing that happens in, in um, speech act confusion mansplaining. She tries to take some particular kind of speech action and she's taken up or she's interpreted as making a different kind. Yeah, it'd be one of those, oh, geez, sort of situations. <laughs> if, you, if you weren't trying to ask for information and someone was like, well, let me explain this to you. That's the kind of thing. That's how it feels uh, to have uh, speech act confusion mansplaining done to you. Hmm. So is this related to the elocutionary force that you uh, talked about in your other paper? Exactly. Yeah. So the force, the illocutionary force of a utterance is the kind of speech action it is. So questions are one kind of illocutionary force. Assertions are another. Requests are another. Illocutionary force is the kind of conversational move that your speech action is. And um, different philosophers have different views about what it takes to have one force or another. Um, but everybody kind of agrees that there are these different forces and that the different forces accomplish different goals, accomplish different effects in the conversation. I know you had that example about 
when police officers quote unquote request for you to do something, but something like, uh, was it 60%? I think it was even higher. It's a high, a high right. percentage. Yeah. Yeah. They interpreted that as a command. Yeah. Yeah. So the case is really, um, this is a really interesting case. Um, and it made it to the Supreme court. I was, you know, it's always fun, fun. It's always uh, interesting when your philosophy makes it into the real world in really, um, notable ways. So the Supreme Court heard a case about um, uh, unwarranted searches in which a police officer said, may I look inside your bag? And the uh, defendant in the original case um, took this to be a request, right? I'm sorry, took this to be a command, um, said, may I look inside your bag? And because a police officer said it, the person heard it as, as, a, as a command and was like, oh, I have to comply. And uh, Antonin Scalia, Justice Scalia, in writing um, about this case, wrote that saying may I clearly indicated the person was, was requesting and requests can be denied. So it wasn't an involuntary search. The person volunteered to have their bag searched. And so uh, criminologists, I mean, people study uh, Supreme Court cases all the time. So criminologists look into this case and they found that uh, people who imagined or heard um, a police officer saying, may I look inside your bag, overwhelmingly heard that as a command, something they couldn't say no to. Mm-hmm. So this is a case where the illocutionary force, the, the speech act, the kind of conversational move that the police officer is making makes a difference to the legality of looking in, of, of um, uh, the search of looking inside the person's bag. And I think that, um, it's a really, it, it brings into really sharp relief the difference an elocutionary force can make. Hmm. There's this TV show on Netflix. It's a, uh, there's a bunch of, there's like five superheroes. They were orphans and I forget the name, but, but one of them has this superpower where she can, essentially say something and then brainwash the person in front of them. And that's kind of what I think about when I think of elocutionary force. It's kind of like this, this wave that passes on to the other person. And then they didn't say it in the way, because the way that they said it uh, objectively, yeah, it's a request, but it, it's kind of this, yeah, it's a force that kind of drags you into doing something. Yeah. Good, good. So, um, Really, there's a lot of really important stuff in what you just said. Um, the the sort of objectively, it's a it's a request. We want to. I'd want to say grammatically, it's a request, right? So there's this yeah. sort of what's called surface grammar, um, which says like that's just the grammatical form of that sentence, right? You can't really deny that. That's just sort of how grammar works. Um, but notice that we do that. Surface grammar often doesn't um, tell us what the illocutionary force is. So if I say to somebody, uh, can you pass me the salt, right? The surface grammar of that is that it's a question, but if they just said yes and didn't pass me the salt, they would be, or if they said like, no, I'm not able to, uh, they would be sort of violating the pragmatics of the sort of uh, the force of that, um, <laughs> of that exchange. So the, the surface grammar can be a clue as to the illocutionary force. But as you say, in conversation, sometimes it, it, we're sort of dragged along to a different kind of force. 
And that dragging uh, is often called the normative status um, uh, of, the, of the conversational partners. So when I make a request of you, if you recognize it and uh, you hear it as a request, that changes what you feel like you can permissibly do in the conversation. Of course, you don't have to comply. It's just a request, but I've changed the stakes. I've sort of made the social situation have, the, have this force. Um, so you're, you're picking up on something that's, um, that's people write about in the literature, the, this idea that we change what people feel permitted to do when we talk to each other. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like you could make a a comedy movie where someone wakes up in their bed and then they go out into the world. And then when they speak, everyone takes everything that they say purely to the teeth. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Where we just obey surface grammar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be weird. <laughs> weird. So do you ever delve into how context affects language and things like that? Yeah, um, I do a little um, and other philosophers in my area do even more. Um, I work less with the particular meanings of words um, that in, in the sort of uh, area I work in is called the locution. Um, it's also sometimes called the semantics, right? So the meanings of the words, I do less with that um, than some other folks do. Um, but I do, in my own theorizing about this, argue that context can make a huge difference in how we interpret one another. So um, especially in terms of the elocutionary force. So if somebody is a police officer, but they're not currently in uniform, like if I'm friends with a police officer and they're at my backyard barbecue and they say, can I look in your bag? probably not going to treat that as a command, even if I would in some more official context. So uh, context can make a huge difference in um, how conversation goes. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, without, especially, I mean, when you're learning Spanish, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever spent any time learning Spanish, but uh, that language, there's context everywhere. At least when you're learning it, you you realize that you kind of, at least when you're speaking most of the language, you have to take into account who you're speaking to, um, where you are, uh, and a variety of other factors that determine how you're going to speak. So mm -hmm. that's also kind of, I mean, context can affect the language that you use, but, but also uh, how you interpret that language. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's true. I mean, it's true in, in Spanish and in French, um, in terms of formality, at least in French. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's probably true in English too, but because I'm a native English speaker, I don't maybe notice that as much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's probably true. Uh, so I wanted to ask, um, this is kind of going back to mansplaining, but I wanted to know if, if women can mansplain as well. Yeah, great question. Um, I think they can. I think it's psychologically difficult, and I'll say why in a minute, but I try and be pretty careful um, that mansplainers mansplain. Men don't mansplain, or I don't, it's not exclusively men that mansplain. <laughs> um, so here's why it's psychologically difficult. 
totally possible. This is a thing people could do because psychology is complicated and we can have lots of different attitudes in our heads at once. But here's why it's hard. Mansplaining definitionally requires that I'm, I'm participating in the set of conversational patterns because my conversational partner is a woman. If I am also a woman, then I have to have in mind both that women can't be as expert as I am and that I am a woman, <laughs> right? So there's this sort of like um, cognitive dissonance in thinking that, oh, she's a woman, she can't be that much of an expert, but I can provide my expertise while at the same time knowing that I'm a woman. Totally possible, it's not a contradiction, it's just psychologically challenging. It requires a kind of deep exceptionalism. Like I, I can explain this better than she can because I'm an exceptional kind of woman. So again, something that people can totally do. We have strange and uh, complicated psychologies, but I do think that it's um, gonna be less frequent uh, for women to mansplain just because of that kind of cognitive dissonance. So is there maybe another word for, um, if you're explaining something in a certain way because you assume that the other person isn't as smart as you? Um, separated from gender? Oh, great, great. Really good question. Yes, I think this happens um, all the time with different dimensions of identity in play. Um, so uh, white explaining is something that people talk about where um, because, uh, or I might explain something or participate in a set of conversational practices because the person I'm talking to is uh, a person of color, uh, that would be, uh, I'm white, that would be uh, white explaining. One that came up um, that I sort of saw firsthand but didn't have a name for is sometimes called mumsplaining, uh, where mumsplaining happens when uh, parents who are men or who are perceived as men um, are assumed not to be sufficiently expert at raising their kids. So my brother-in-law um, was a stay-at-home parent for some time when his kids were little and people would assume that he didn't, that he was not a competent care provider. People would assume that because he was a man, he didn't know what his kids wanted to order at restaurants, right? If I was out to dinner with the, with my brother-in-law and uh, my niece and nephew, they would ask me what the kids wanted. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not their parent. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he knows. So mumsplaining um, happens when because of someone's social identity, because of their gender, they're assumed not to be an expert in child rearing. Uh, so these are just particular examples of the ways that different social identities can um, make you, uh, can put you at risk for this kind of behavior. Um, I don't, there isn't a sort of overall category name. Sometimes people talk about like splainings because um, it's, you know, mum splainings, white splainings, man splainings. Um, but no, I don't think anyone's come up with a great category name. Hmm. Yeah, that mumsplaining one is interesting. I think there's there's probably a lot of that, especially, I mean, just even, I mean, there's definitely a lot of moms out there that'll at least judge people on the way that uh, they raise their children. So, I mean, I'm sorry, your, your brother-in-law had to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, right, it's a bummer. Um, yeah, and I think that, 
uh, judging people on the way that they raise their kids before you've even seen how they raise their kids, right? This is mm -hmm. just on the basis of his gender. Um, really frustrating. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess it's important to judge people if they're doing bad things <laughs> visibly. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, um, I was going to ask you something. Uh, yeah, so I was looking through some of your research and there was one question I wrote down. It was, what is a constitutive norm? And, and uh, yeah, what is a constitutive norm? Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, this is sort of a throwback question for me. I, this is my, um, some of my earlier work is on this. Okay. So uh, in the philosophy of language, um, in, in particular on in people who are looking at illocutionary forces, um, there's been a lot of work trying to sort out what makes an utterance have one force or another. So this is super relevant, right? We've been talking about this uh, throughout our conversation. Um, if there's this confusion about whether someone is requesting or asserting, for example, we want to be able to say, well, what makes something a question versus an assertion? What makes something a request versus a command, right? These are important questions. And one branch, one, um, one effort to try and say what makes something have this force versus that force has, has come out of this tradition in which uh, people argue that there's what, there are what are called constitutive norms of these different kinds of, of speech action. Constitutive norms are rules where if you're subject to that rule, you are the kind that's being constituted. That's super abstract. I'll give you a particular example. Okay. But, uh, the idea is that being a member of a certain kind is definitionally or um, is constituted by being subject to a rule. So um, you might think that you should never, you shouldn't assert something unless you know it. That doesn't mean that on, people only assert when they know things, right? People would assert things they don't know, but they're doing it badly, right? They, they shouldn't assert in that, in that uh, situation. If that's true, then the constitutive norm or the constitutive rule of assertion is that you must know it to assert properly. Hmm. And this would be different from say a request. I can request, without knowing, that's not really tied to requesting in the same way. So there's supposed to be this like deep relationship between the rule that you're subject to and the kind of elocutionary force you are. Um, uh, the rule that the speech action is subject to and the kind of elocutionary force it has. And then there'd be a different constitutive rule or constitutive norm for requesting, right? It could be, I shouldn't request something unless I want that action done. And then, of course, people do request things they don't want to have happen, but they're not requesting properly in that context. Mm. That's the, the idea of the constitutive norm. It's a sort of rule that says to do this kind of thing properly, you have to meet this condition. And then if you're subject to that rule, you're a member of the kind. This kind of reminds me, I don't know why it reminds me, but it reminds me of this episode of How I Met Your Mother when... Uh... 
don't know if you've ever seen that show. No. Mm-mm. But there's a character that his dad dies and then he goes home to his mom and he stays in her house for a little while. And then she kind of just makes him a bunch of sandwiches and does a bunch of nice stuff for him. And then, and then his wife comes and visits and then and his wife's like, why are you making your mom do all this stuff for you? Um, she, you know, her husband just died. Uh, like, why are you making her do all this stuff? And he's like, oh, well, she's my mom. She loves doing all this stuff. It makes her feel better. And then she goes out into the other room and then his mom uh, tells his wife, you got to get this guy out of here. Okay. I can't stand doing all this stuff for him anymore. <laughs> yeah. Good. That kind of um, difference of interpretation of people's behavior is, is deeply informing my work on elocutionary force. Yeah. Cause I think uh, um, she's in kind of the mom group, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. and and her son you know he's in the son group so he's assuming that there's this uh i might be explaining this wrong but he's assuming that there's this norm that her mom will follow that'll make her feel good so what's your your opinion on that yeah good i think that's a nice uh, a nice use of the idea of the constitutive norm right um he interprets mothering properly as uh doing all this nice stuff Right? That's, that's part of what it is to be a mom is to, to sort of take care of your kid in his interpretation. Um, uh, and maybe that's just, maybe that's true of mom, momming um, or being a member of that group. Uh, good. This helpfully brings out some of the ways in which people can have disagreements, both about what the details are of the constitutive norm, but also about what kind of, um, membership something has, right? So it's possible in a a case like the one you're describing that she, that there are different interpretations of what it takes to mother properly, but it's also possible that in that context, what she needed was not to be a member of the group mother. She needed to be a member of a different group like mourning partner or mourning spouse. Mm -hmm. And so even if he was right about what the, what, what are called propriety conditions, what would be proper for a mother to do, if that's not the group that she was most helpfully a member of in that moment, it doesn't really matter what the constitutive norms of mothering are. She was a member of a different group in that context. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess uh, when these things get confused, that's when problems arise. Yeah, and I think it's, um, when, when these things get confused when, and when people have um, different perceptions of the situation, our expectations can be really um, powerful and we can have a lot of, we have a lot of feelings when they're frustrated. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's some other areas of your research that I thought might uh, help in having us handle situations like that like better empathizing with others. You talk about intellectual humility and what is that? Yeah, great. So this was um, a project I was working on when I was on that um, postdoc, the interdisciplinary work I was doing. And I was on a project that was examining the relationship between humility and conviction. 
especially when you're in, uh, especially in contexts that are more or less public. So the project was called Humility and Conviction in Public Life. And we were looking at the ways in which it's important to have sort of the power of your convictions to, be, to really believe in what you believe in. It's important in democracy, especially that we advocate for our beliefs with conviction. We don't want people to be pursuing goals that they don't really believe in. So it's important that we have conviction, but it's also important that we are intellectually humble when we're approaching one another with this conviction. But, and, and intellectual humility is a, um, a character trait or a disposition or a sort of set of habits um, that has come under a lot of investigation recently. There have been some, a, a large number of grants um, given to people to study it uh, and that's driven some of the research. And I was lucky enough to get um, to be part of one such grant. And so we were looking at the ways in which we were looking at what intellectual humility is, um, but also at uh, how it was related to coming into a democratic practice with conviction. So I've written a little bit about what intellectual humility is. And I understand intellectual humility as involving a healthy awareness of the limitations of your beliefs or the limitations of your justification. So having reflected on and come to appreciate the ways in which your beliefs and your justification are finite, they are uh, subject to scrutiny, you might need to, and it might be intellectually healthy for you to revisit some of your beliefs um, and to be aware of the ways in which people are biased, you are biased, I am biased, and um, that's not always bad, but it does mean that our beliefs need to be, uh, we need to be reflect reflective and um, aware of where we're limited. And so uh, intellectual humility in my way of thinking can help us to be empathetic when we come across people with whom we have deep disagreement. Uh, so in the paper, um, Intellectual Humility and Empathy by Analogy, I argue that when I have a deep disagreement with somebody, and I mean like a deep political disagreement, it could be a deep religious disagreement, it could be a deep disagreement about like where we should build a bridge or how much money we should allocate to public schools, right? Any of these things um, could constitute a deep disagreement. When I come across somebody and I think that they're wrong, we have a disagreement, um, I probably think that because I think that their evidence or their beliefs are limited. I think that they have problems. I think that they have, they lack evidence or they're not properly um, apportioning their beliefs to the evidence. They're not tracking the truth when they're coming up with their beliefs, um, that they're getting bad information. Right? I think that they're limited in some important way. But if I've also reflected on the ways in which I'm limited, the ways in which my own beliefs are subject to scrutiny, the ways in which I've made mistakes and probably continue to make mistakes, then I can approach that situation with more empathy. I can recognize that we're both in this context of having limited beliefs. And that can help me think this person is not, unless I think that because I'm limited, I'm inherently wrong, or I'm inherently unable to update my beliefs properly, I should be able to think limitations don't make us stuck. They don't make us inherently worse. So the goal is by cultivating intellectual humility, I can approach these, these situations of deep disagreement with more empathy.
So maybe mansplainers can use intellectual humility to prevent themselves from mansplaining. That's great. That, that's a great idea. Um, the sort of reflecting on their own limitations might make them less eager to offer an explanation. Is that the idea? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um, uh, that's a nice connection. Yeah. Or maybe for the well, actually, it would work. Or maybe the third one. Uh, what was the first one again? So there's well, actually, straw mansplaining and speech act confusion. And I think you're right. For well, actually, that should, that should help. Um, it's I think for any of them, it, can, it could help if what's happening is the, the mansplainer is just so excited about their own view, so excited about their own explanation that they have to jump in with it. Uh, if that's what's causing the mansplaining, then intellectual humility should definitely help. <laughs> yeah, they're just so excited to explain something to someone that... Hmm. Any opportunity, yep. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to ask you another question. Um, before we go, what is an epistemic obligation? Asking the hard questions. Uh, so epistemic obligations um, are really controversial. There are, okay. when I argue for um, some of the views that I um, defend, people will often push me on epistemic obligations. Um, and part of this is because the literature on obligations, the sort of philosophical thinking of obligations has been long and complicated and there's lots of commitments that come along with it. So going back to Kant, but even further than that, really, um, people write about obligations, have been writing about obligations for a long time. All I mean by an epistemic obligation is something that if you fail to do it, you're a worse epistemic agent. So you ought to do something to be a good epistemic agent. Here's an example. If uh, I'm presented with a bunch of evidence that, um, that the post office is only open till four, hmm. right? People show me the, the website, people um, show me pictures they've taken of the hours on the door, right? All of this evidence that the post office is only open till four. I ought to believe that the post office is only open till four. If there's some other evidence, like if I know that like my favorite postmaster will be there till, there till five, right? Maybe I can apportion my beliefs differently, right? But if all if evidence overwhelmingly suggests that the post office is only open till four and I fail to believe it, I'm doing something I probably shouldn't do. Hmm. You know, all other things being equal. There could be, of course, other circumstances that could interrupt this, but that's an example of an epistemic obligation. It's an obligation. It's something I should do to make me a good epistemic agent. Now, of course, there could be other kinds of obligations in this case, right? Maybe my partner has told me that it's open till five. And so I have like a familial obligation to believe it's open till five, or maybe um, uh, it would be somehow immoral for me to believe it was only open till four. I don't know. We can have contra um, uh, contradictory obligations, but 
epistemic obligations are the things we ought to do because of things like evidence or truth or knowledge, um, the things that epistemologists care about. So I think we have all kinds of epistemic obligations. I think we have epistemic obligations to believe in accordance with the evidence. That's a, that's a big one. But I also think we have epistemic obligations to people we are inquiring with. So this is especially uh, obvious, I think, in research contexts. But if I'm working with somebody on a research project uh, in a lab or in um, some other context of inquiry, and I think they're going off in a wrong direction, I think they're pursuing a bad question or they're otherwise um, going about the research incorrectly, then I think I have an obligation to tell them. And I think we have these obligations in democratic contexts as well. If I think, like go back to the um, building a bridge case. If I think that building a bridge where my neighbor thinks, uh, my neighbor plans to build it is gonna be really detrimental somehow or is um, gonna be too expensive, that might give me moral obligation to tell them, but it might also give me epistemic obligation to tell them because we're engaged in this project of deciding together. So our moral obligations and our epistemic obligations don't always conflict. I think they're often uh, come into contact, they're often the same. Um, and I think that we, we have, there are things we ought to do because we are knowers and because we are inquiring together. Um, and those are the things I call epistemic obligations. So say you have a kid and the kid turns on the fan and your kid's been like spitting itself all day. And then you could tell the kid, Hey, don't spit in the fan because it's going to blow back in your face. Right. Yeah. Or so, so you have the obligation to tell them that, right. That's, would that be an epistemic obligation? Great question. You might have an epistemic obligation in that case. Yeah. That could be counted as an epistemic obligation but you might also have a prudential obligation not to, right? So a prudential obligation is an obligation that's sort of practical um, for things to go well, for your sort of plans to go well that don't have to do with inquiry, um, right? Letting my kid experience that firsthand might be a better lesson than me yeah. just telling them, um, right? So, uh, Epistemic, so, so good, I might have a prudential and an epistemic obligation not to, um, and that's okay. Often our obligations are gonna be complicated in, in this way where for some uh, epistemic reasons, I should tell them, but that is outweighed by other kinds of considerations. Yeah, he should experience the, or she should experience the spit going back in their face just so they know not to do it. Yeah, and that's going to be a way better lesson. That's going to have better epistemic results than uh, my telling them. So are there any other, any other ways that you've experienced this sort of uh, epistemic obligation as your time as a philosopher? So my, my most recent work, my most current work, is on the ways in which we have epistemic obligations to people who are depending on us. Uh, so we have epistemic obligations to people who are, to borrow some terminology from care ethics, who are vulnerable to us. And vulnerability is the kind of thing where 
my, we're all vulnerable to one another in lots of contexts, but my actions stand to benefit or cost somebody uh, that constitutes a vulnerability. So this is particularly notable in the epistemic context in the classroom. So I teach, I actually, I think of teaching as deeply part of my um, philosophical life. I, I find it really enriching and important for my own inquiry, but also for my self-conception as a philosopher. And it's important when I'm teaching that I am sensitive to and understanding to the best of my ability what my students need. If I go into my intro philosophy class and I launch into deep jargon-filled theory, what I'm saying might be perfectly accurate. It might be perfectly correct. It might even give my students some true beliefs, but they're not gonna understand it as well as they would if I were meeting their vulnerabilities, if I were meeting what they need, which is a simpler explanation, more scaffolding, more examples, less jargon, right? All the sort of good pedagogical practice um, that is involved in teaching well. So I think that teachers in all kinds of contexts, official education, formal education and otherwise, have epistemic obligations to their students. Um, and that involves meeting uh, their vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's interesting. And of course, maybe they can't explain things too simply, or they'll be maybe teach explaining or whatever yeah. you want to call that, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So do you have anything else that you'd like to say before we go? Thank you for chatting with me about this. Uh, you've, you've discovered some really good connections um, that I need to explore a little more. So I, I appreciate your time and I appreciate uh, this conversation very much. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks for listening to Into the Absurd with Dr. Casey Johnson. <laughs>